So we are continuing on in our Destination Next series where we're looking at who we are as a church and who we want to become. That's where we spent the whole summer getting grounded and getting ready for the fall and the upcoming, upcoming 12 months. And to get us started today, I want to take us back to a Sunday night in the spring of my junior year in high school. At Trumbull High School at that time, there was a club called the AFS Club. I do not know now. I did not know then what AFS stood for. However, it, to me, it came to stand for away from school. AFS was basically like a domestic exchange where a couple kids with Trumbull High, from Trumbull High would go to a school at a state, spend a couple of days there, spend a weekend there with some students, and then they would, they would flip-flop. So one weekend, my friends who were a part of that club, um, they also happened to be part of this church in town. Um, and they would, for years, they invited me to this thing on Sunday nights at church, to which I said, no, no thank you. At that point in my life, I was not interested in God or the things of God or any of that stuff. Um, so this one particular night, there are some AFS kids in town, and my friends, involved both in AFS and youth group, invite me to this youth group thing. I'm like, you guys, no, I, thank you, but no. And then they said, um, you know those cute girls that are in town from AFS? They're going to be there. I said, okay, just this once. And um, so I went. And, you know, the next day came, and the AFS kids left town. We never saw them again. Um, but you know what? The next week, I went back to that thing at church. I went back to youth group because um, it wasn't terrible. It was actually like I had a good time. It was fun. Um, the leaders there were weird, but nowhere near as weird as I thought they were going to be. They were weird in a good way. Um, and there were also quite a few cute girls there who I went to school with and who I already knew. Um, so I kept going back. And as the leaders invited me to come back, they began to invite me into their life. And they began to open up the Bible for me. They began to open their homes for me. And I don't know about you, but like sometimes when I hear the term youth leader, whether it's thinking about a secular, secular organization or in a church environment, um, I have like this picture in my head of like a cool 20-something kind of person, right? And yeah, there were a couple of those folks who were leaders there, but there were also, there's a guy in his late 30s, um, and then there was a couple in their early 40s who were married and had, had kids of their own. Um, and none of these folks were like, extremely cool by any stretch. Few of them might even be classified as a little bit nerdy. But they loved us. They loved Jesus and they loved us. They wanted us to know about our need for Jesus and how he fit, how he wanted to fit into our lives. So we would, um, they really just opened up their lives to us. Like they would come home and we would be sitting in their living rooms or on their front porch, like waiting for them or their back porch or um, they, they would get up early on weekdays to meet with us in smaller groups to um, help us understand the Bible. They, they literally, like one of them was a, a, a triathlete. So during the summer when I was home from college training for football, she would run with me and like help me, like running was my least favorite part of training. And she would help me and encourage me in that. Like they met us where we were, they invited us into their lives and they said, watch the Jesus in me. And so, you know, I, I grew older and I was reading the Bible for myself, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, I'm like, they were imitating Jesus. 
That's all they were doing. They were imitating how Jesus related to other people, what he did with other people to help introduce them to God and to help them become the people that Jesus created them to be. This is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture, going all the way back, almost to the very beginning, right? We see it with Jethro and Moses. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. We see it with Moses and Joshua. We see it with Naomi and Ruth. We see it with Elijah and Elisha. We see it with Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, We see it with Elizabeth and Mary. We see it with Jesus and the disciples. We see it with Barnabas and Paul and Paul and Timothy and, and Peter and John Mark. This relationship of somebody who's further along in their faith taking time to intentionally, sacrificially invest in somebody else is all over the pages of Scripture. It's no wonder that, you know, Jesus is parting words to his disciples. Matthew 28, 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is not an evangelism verse. This is a discipleship verse. The word is right there, to go and make disciples of all nations. And if you know, maybe it's easier to think about this if the term discipleship is like, I don't know, hard to get your hands around or understand. You could think of it as, as mentoring. You could think of it as uh, an apprenticeship, like a, like a tradesman would have. You could think of it as character formation, one person helping another person form their character. And in, this, in our case, our goal is to form that character of, of Christ-likeness. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a closer look at how Jesus did this. Of all those biblical examples, Jesus is the only perfect one. He's the best one for us. And the things that he does are absolutely, like, we, we can do these things, right? We can, um, we can imitate him in this. And the first thing we're going to do, last week we talked about building that jesus culture. We're going to take a look at what, um, what I'm calling... Jesus-y math. Um, so what I want to do is we're going to look at how Jesus met with um, groups of thousands. He met with um, groups of 72, 12, and 3, right? To the group of thousands, he was there, right? He was present. He provided them information and teaching. He granted them healing on quite a, quite a few occasions, there were people in that group who followed him and who loved him. There were people in that group who weren't really sure what to make of him. There were people in that group who were flat out hostile to him. From within that group of a thousand, there were 72 who attached themselves to Jesus as their teacher. And Jesus gave them, he gave them, um, he gave them mission and he gave them authority. From within those 72 there was another 12. And he specially designated those 12. He gave them the job of carrying on his work after his death and, and resurrection. Now the 72, like the, you, can, you can find the scripture references where um, Jesus designated them specifically for a purpose and a specific group of people. The 12, the same thing. The three there's not an official designation, but as I'm going to show you in a second, you trace the narrative of the, the Gospels, you see that there was something very um, different or unique about the relationship that Jesus had with Peter and with James and with John. So what he gave to the 12 and more so to the three was access. He gave them access to his life. 
And I try, last time when we were together, we just took a look at one scripture passage. And I try not to bounce you guys all over the Bible, but in order to follow this relationship, how this relationship develops between Jesus and the three, um, we're going to kind of have to do a little work moving around. I put the references up there for you to follow along on your own. We see Jesus just going about his business, and a crowd is gathering around him, and a religious leader comes up to him. His daughter is sick. He wants Jesus to come heal the daughter. Before Jesus can get to her, the daughter dies. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the three, along with the girl's mother and father. Nobody else goes into the room where the dead girl is, and he raises her from the dead. Jump ahead to something that we refer to as the transfiguration. Jesus is with the 12. They're hanging out. He wants to go for a hike. He says, Peter, James, John, we're going for a hike up the mountain. Come with me. The four of them go. They get to the top of the mountain, and things start getting funky, right? Jesus starts to glow. The heavens open up. Moses and Elijah, two heroes of their faith who have been dead for hundreds of years, show up. They start having a conversation with Jesus. Peter, James, and John don't know what to do themselves. They just fall face down. And then a voice from heaven, the voice of God, is audible to all of them, said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Things quiet down. Jesus stops glowing. Moses and Elijah go away. They start hiking back down the mountain. Jesus tries to help them process what they just experienced, asks them to kind of keep it to themselves. This relationship between Jesus and the three is developing. So we get to this um, fig tree encounter. The three go to Jesus, right? They feel like they can approach him and say, Jesus, what, what's up with this story you told of the fig tree? Why are some people understanding it? Why are some people not? What's and Jesus takes the time. They ask him to teach them. So they feel comfortable enough with them to say, hey, we don't understand this. We don't know this. Can you explain this to us? And the last place we see this, this unique relationship that Jesus had with the three is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before Jesus is tried and crucified and dies. And he goes in the garden to pray. He's with the disciples. He asks the three, Peter, James, and John, to come with him. And they go off to pray. They go with him, no problem. Don't, don't, don't bat an eyelash. But they struggled to, um, to do what Jesus was, was, was asking them. So what Jesus did, right, regardless of what he was doing, when he healed Jairus' daughter, he was just out going for a walk. He was going from one place to another. The crowds gathered. Jairus found him. It's just a normal, everyday thing. And it happened to end up resulting in a resurrection. The transfiguration was maybe, if not the high point, one of the highest points of Jesus' time on earth. And he invited the three into that. Right? And we look at the, the fig tree, and that's like a, a symbol of their growing relationship, not the story itself, but like that interaction. And then finally, what might be the lowest, one of the lowest, if not the lowest, accounts in the stories of Jesus' life is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus invited them into that, um, that experience with him. What access did, right, it, it opened up the door for Jesus to both invite and challenge, both to invite and challenge the three, uh, the 12, but more so the three, right? The invitation is to relationship and the challenge is to change. The invitation is, I got you. I got your back. I'm going to support you. I'm going to encourage you. 
The challenge is I'm going to set a high bar for you. The invitation is I'm going to meet you where you're at. The challenge is I'm going to move you, help try to help move you into the people that God created you to be. That's a term that you're going to continue to hear, right? High invitation, high challenge. High invitation, high challenge. We want to come alongside people and let them know that we are with them, we are for them, we support them, and that we want to challenge them up into the people that God created them to be. I want to share with you a quick quote. Um, this is from uh, James Wilder. It kind of talks about this idea of what access and invitation and challenge result in. Identity is propagated like cuttings from live plants and not grown from seeds. This way of growing an identity by receiving the life passed on from one who went before is true for us at a physical level, just as it is an emotional and a spiritual level. Jesus was reproducing himself in the people around him, right? The part of him that was 100% human, he was reproducing into the 72 and the 12 and into Peter, James, and John so they could grow into the people that God created them to be and they could fulfill the mission that God had for them. What Jesus did through access and invitation and challenge was to invest, right? He gave of his time. He gave of his effort. He gave of his relationship with God. At, he invited them into the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and he said, watch me. He let them watch him remain true to the, he remained true to the person that God created him to be. He remained true to the mission that God gave him, whether things were good or things were bad. And they got, the three got to experience him doing that, to watch how he did it, right? I want to look quickly at this idea of investment and the, um, the five different kinds of capital, right? The goods or assets that we have to um, pour into something or someone else. And these are listed on your screen in order of least important to most important, in order of, of easiest to um, invest or to give and the hardest to invest or to give. Financial is simply, simply our dollars. Intellectual, creativity, our thoughts, our ideas. The physical is our time and our energy. The relational is, is time, like our, our, our network of people, that we're, we bring people into our circle of relationship, our sphere of influence, again, our time. What's interesting to note about relationships is the other four cannot happen outside of relation, right? That relational investment, that's got to be there. And the last one, the most important and arguably the hardest to invest is the individual, our individual, in Jesus' case, his individual relationship with God the Father, our relationship with God. That is the single most important asset that we have to share, to invest in the lives of, of others. All right, there's a lot of, lot of talk, a lot of numbers, a lot of what Jesus did. Let's try and take that from 2,000 years ago. And um, I want you to this is the big idea that I want you to walk away from this with, okay? As we think about going into the real world, to pour out our lives on behalf of others in our given context with our unique gifts, talents, and experiences is the best response to the life of Jesus poured out for us. To pour out our lives on behalf of others is the best response to the life of Jesus poured out for us. As we continue to move through this conversation, that's what I want you to keep in mind. All right, so in the real world, you know, we had a, a planning meeting here, and I think it was um, Kate Roshansky who said that 
people are hungry for relationships. In my lifetime, I, don't, I, I can't remember a point in time when, when people more desperately wanted or needed relationships. In the last seven to 10 days, the people of Crossroads, the people of Crossroads, right? This isn't far away. This is, the, I'm lonely. The loneliness is, is, is the, that, and the boredom that comes with it is paralyzing. I feel so isolated. Folks, these are people that you know, that we know. There's a tremendous, tremendous hunger that exists for relationships right now. And part, a big part of that is our current cultural moment, everything that's going on coming out of the pandemic. But the other part is that's how we're created, right? We're made in the image of God who was made for relationships. And that's how our brains are wired. Listen to this. Our brains draw life from our strongest relational attachments to grow our character and develop our identity. Who we love shapes who we are. Let me say that part again. Who we love shapes who we are. Character formation is the central task of the church. Our brains are designed to use our attachments to form our character. That's from a guy named Jim Wilder in a book called The Other Half of of Church. Um, Relationships are key. Our our most attached, most significant relationships should be with Jesus. And then right after that should be with his people and the new family of God so that we can help each other grow into the people God created us to be. So Jesus gave us this example. He gave us this command. Um, but yet there's still a significant lack of this happening um, in the Western church. And I would say also at, at Crossroads. And why, why is that, right? So here, um, the two... The two common um, objections would be, I don't, I don't have time, right? So let's remember that the phrase that I keep throwing out there is intentional, sacrificial investment. In order to do this, something is going to have to give, right? You're going to have to do some reprioritization. Now, on the other side of that coin, if we look at Jesus and the way he did this, he didn't add anything to his calendar, right? He didn't have, meet with the guys every other Tuesday night. He was living his life. He was going about his mission. He was becoming, he was living out the man that God created him to be in front of other people. That was his training program. That was how Peter and James and John learned, right? So we don't have to add anything to our schedule, it would sometimes it'd be easier, right? There'd be occasions where we are going to have to sacrifice time. But if we look at the way Jesus did it, he invited people into his life, into what was already happening. The second most common objection is this, not me. I can't do this. This is like, you know what? You're right. This is a monstrous task. And on our own, we are not... Right? We could get caught up in the idea of we're supposed to save people. That's not our job. Jesus saves people. But with Jesus' model, through the power of his spirit that resides within us, we absolutely can do this. Robert Coleman, in a, in a classic book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, says anyone who wants to be used by Jesus is capable of doing this. Anyone who wants to be used by Jesus is capable of doing this. Now, with that said, a couple of pieces of practicality. If we want to do this, if we want to battle through the not me, yeah, I want to be used by Jesus, the first thing we have to do is keep our relationship with Jesus primary. 
our most significant attached relationship needs to be with Jesus. And it's out of the overflow of that relationship that we can invest into other people. The second thing is, while no special training, right, this is not for pastors only or for professional Christians only, no special training is needed. Training absolutely helps. It builds our confidence and it can speed up the learning curve into how to best and most efficiently invest into the lives of others. So coming up in the fall and in the year to come, we're going to do the best we can to provide some practical training to, to help us all get better at investing in the lives of others. And the last thing I would say about this idea of not me, you don't have to do it alone. Right? I would suggest that each one of us needs a handful of people to invest in us. Right? Jesus invested in a handful of people. He's Jesus. He can handle a handful of people. We should flip that ratio. Right? Take the inverse of that ratio. If Jesus was investing in 12 and then another three, we should have multiple people who we can look to and invest in us. Maybe not at the same time, right? But again, so this idea of you can't, I can't do it. Jesus first, we're going to provide some training. There's lots of other people who should be pouring into um, that person that you're investing in as well. So what, what do we want to happen? Start with what we don't want to happen, right? We're not, this is not about fixing people. We're not, if we enter into a relationship with the idea that we're going to fix somebody, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a guaranteed fail. And the, the second part of that is we are not supposed to have all the answers. If we go into this relationship thinking that every question that this person has, I'm supposed to have at my fingertips and just answer another recipe for disaster. That is, we can't go into that mindset or we will fail. What we do want, right, what we, the outcome of this is, is we're looking to create disciples. And what I mean by that is this. We want to help people be able to hear from God, right, whether it's through scripture, whether it's in prayer, whether it's through circumstances, through other people. We want to be able to help others hear from God so that they're reminded of who God created them to be and they can remain who God created them to be in good times and in bad. That they would hear from God in a way that they can determine what to do about what God is saying to them, that they can make a plan and ask for some help in, in establishing that plan. And finally, and maybe most importantly, that they would in turn sacrificially invest in others. As we invest in someone, that they would then in turn invest in somebody else. You guys, that, that is a lot. I threw a lot at you. It's a high level look at what it means to um, to live in the family of God and to intentionally, sacrificially invest in others. A couple of practical things that you can do. Right now and in the coming days and this week, I want you to be thinking and praying about who you could ask to invest in you, who you could tap on the shoulder and say, man, I really see Jesus in you. I would love to spend some more time with you and, and learn from you and to just spend time with you. Um, and the flip side of that is... Who is there that you could be investing in? Who do you see who maybe is in a little bit different season of life or had similar experiences that you've had and that you could share some of your experience with Jesus with them, right? Who can you invest in and who can invest in you? And in the, in the chat box, we're going to drop a, a link. Um, three books, like if you want to take this upon yourself to do some more reading, the classic book that I recommended, Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman, um, a book that has shaped a lot of my thinking about discipleship, Building a Discipling Culture by Mike Breen, 
and then a new book that has just kind of come across my, my radar in the last couple of months um, with some great, great insight is The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder and uh, Michael Hendricks. So I would strongly encourage you to do that. As we look to what's next, and if we want to be serious about building a Jesus-y culture, it's going to take intentional, sacrificial investment in others. And the iron is hot. People are hungry for a relationship. People want others involved in their lives, and they want to be involved in the lives of others. You, you guys, we have an opportunity in front of us to do something great in Jesus' name through the idea of these intentional, sacrificial relationships. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for um, your command. Thank you so much for your example. Um, so very clear, Jesus, in how you spent your time. God, would you make us the kind of people who are willing to sacrifice on behalf of others? God, would you, would you point out those people to us who you want us in those relationships with? God, open our eyes to see those people right in front of us who might be feeling lonely or isolated. God, would you give us the courage to speak up, to tap somebody on the shoulder, to help reproduce ourselves into others, to help reproduce the Jesus that is in us in others. God, that's what we want to do. That's what we want Crossroads to be about. That's, that's how Crossroads is going to grow. Would you do that in us, Jesus? We love you and we thank you. Amen.